Welcome to the Naked Innovation Podcast, where we feature leaders in enterprise innovation for honest discussions about what works, what doesn't, and what the future looks like. Each episode is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. At Naked Ambition, we teach the habits of innovation to corporate mavericks so they can lead their company into new territory. Welcome to this episode of Naked Innovation. This is your host, Fiona Triarca. In this episode, I chat with Humphrey Laubscher, who is a product innovation coach and a Lean Canvas specialist. His most recent role, Humphrey worked uh, at Australia Post as a leading emerging product manager, which involved driving their new digital innovation strategy by identifying, validating and experimenting with new digital businesses that target Post enterprise and government customers. Prior to this, Humphrey was actually a fintech innovation manager within National Australia Bank's innovation lab, NAB Labs. He was responsible for sourcing and selecting leading commercial partnerships, both locally and globally. A couple of his achievements there included co-developing NAB's $50 million venture capital investment strategy, which was endorsed by the execs there and actually led to the launch of NAB Ventures in 2016. For NAB, he worked as a general manager of innovation for Loud and Clear and was also responsible for launching businesses using Lean Startup, which was backed by the digital services and the team over at Loud and Clear. It's a great conversation with Humphrey where we talk a bit about the intersection between design thinking and Lean and when to apply each of these methodologies. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as we enjoyed recording it. Welcome to the Naked Innovation Podcast. Thank you. It's awesome to have you here. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Well, looking forward to a good conversation about all things innovation, but specifically what works and what doesn't work when it comes to corporate innovation. Because you have had a pretty impressive career when it comes to your laughing here, the innovation space, and have done what, what, you know, sounds like from our sort of earlier conversation, some, yeah, some genuine uh, on the ground, game changing innovation. So it would be good to, can you just start off actually just by telling us a little bit about, I guess, your story? Um, you're now working at Oz Post. So your story up until this career. Yeah, thank you. So uh, I was very started to do this more recently and just preface that uh, anything I say is just based on my background and my experience. So I certainly will not profess to have the answers or know the answers, definitely still trying to figure it out. Uh, I think as a lot of corporates are trying to innovate and understand their own business model and how do they incrementally innovate, how do they innovate in leaps and bounds, etc. Yeah, a little bit about my background and my journey. I was, I was just laughing a little bit because uh been a, a very jagged path. I don't think there's any straight line to sort of where, where I got to. But to give you a, a brief overview, born and raised in South Africa, finished high school, went to the UK, worked there for four years, mostly in IT back then. I had some really good friends who launched some amazing web development conferences and I was looking at them quite funny, going, oh, what's this web thing? You know, IT's great. I kick myself now if I could got in back then in 1998 mm. to 2002 would have been amazing. But anyway, IT served me well, managed to immigrate to Australia in 2003, mostly doing infrastructure architecture for large corporates. So the thing I liked about that role is you got to understand how the business worked. So who were the employees? What were the business lines? How did the business work? And how could you put in infrastructure to help them be successful? 
that could be with mobiles, et cetera, or desktops or laptops, et cetera. But then eventually one day I, I was doing another Microsoft certification. And I was like, why am I doing this? Well, you know, essentially there's a piece of software from Microsoft that needs to be implemented that got developed by someone else who, you know, Bill Gates started this company. And I was like, okay, let me start a company. And that was literally how I started. And what I started doing was going about to networking events. So I just go to every networking event I could. I'd go to events about how to design, how to dev, how to do research, etc. And I'll do this in my part time. So I was doing a lot of IT infrastructure consulting. And I'll just try and launch these businesses by myself and understand, okay, how to acquire a team and did a lot of accelerators as well. Back then there was mobile enterprise growth allowance, sort of like an accelerator on weekends. And I just went through a lot of pain of coming up with an idea, putting it on paper, having a lot of support from other entrepreneurs going, wow, that's amazing. And then you take that out to a customer and you realize, holy crap, it's not this fictitious world that you're living. It's actually real customers who don't have PCs. So I'm talking back in the days, so this was pre-Apple App Source, and Nokia was still 97%. I'm talking to customers about, hey, you don't even have a computer on your desk, you have paper, all these kind of things. But Anyway, I learned a lot of lessons and I was doing IT infrastructure consulting, getting paid really well. And I decided, hey, I spoke to my partner, Amanda, and said, hey, how about I quit my job, get about a third or fourth of what I'm on and move to Sydney? And so she was like, you go first and I'll follow. And so I moved to Sydney to work with Pollinizer, which at the time was the only startup incubator in Australia. Great sort of um, concept around, you know, just launching startups. And, and it was really what I wanted to do. And Took me a while to even figure out what a product manager was, but that was my role there, looking after a product we board. That was great. Learned a lot about not just, it was already launched, but actually retention and engagement. What are the real metrics of a digital product? So you bring someone in, what is their exactly role? How do you incentivize the right users within a product? And how do you actually go from acquisition to activation, retention, revenue, and referral? which was great. And then after that, I uh, spent some time consulting for a bunch of startups, spent a little bit of time in the Valley with Kaggle, spent some time with Optus Innovate Seed and more of their corporate venture capital, understand some of the complexities of having a Singaporean VC and how do you actually you know, work with startups, invest in startups and try to bring those into Optus. Did some product strategy with Nexus. So they're, again, quite an old business, which has a lot of legal documentation. And how do you almost have a global product roadmap? So we had North America, EMEA, Asia Pack, all different strategies. How do you align those? And then more recently, I, I moved back. That was in Sydney. I moved back to Melbourne. We have a, a lovely daughter, Chloe, and uh, a son now, Albie. And so I helped Loud and Clear, a digital agency, launch a non-tech incubator. So you're a non-tech entrepreneur. And we had all the development resources and product managers and designers. So I would help them go through customer discovery and lean startup canvas and actually try and validate their idea before applying code. That was a great piece of work there. And then while I was there, I was actually trying to sell those innovation services into NAB. Therefore, joined NAB Labs, which was their um, innovation group. Sort of joined right at sort of the beginning there. And my job there was to identify and help bring startups into NAB Labs and work with our teams, which worked on, you know, essentially applying human-centered design, lean startup, and agile together in small cross-functional teams. Learned a lot of um, lessons around how do you bring startups in, which have potential, but actually work with the business? And what are the challenges with the internal business? And how do you potentially align those objectives or just understand them so you can better deal with them? And then more recently, for the last year, I've been at Australia Post, the lead product manager in a division called Emerging Products. So essentially, we're just trying to build digital businesses. 
So we're looking to build brand new digital businesses. I have a cross-functional team of about five people, mm-hmm. full stack devs, design thinking, service designers, researchers, and other designers. And so we're looking at brand new products that we can actually launch, build, test, scale for our customers. Nice. What a rap sheet. Yes. A lot <laughs> of lessons. A lot of lessons from startups to corporates to how to test. And um, yeah, it's, it, I've learned a lot. Awesome. So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now at Australia Post. So what specifically is your role there? And also what's the process that you're using within that team? To yeah, sure. So uh, Australia Post is some distinct business units. So our, our broader group is separate from the traditional consumer post, mail, etc. division. So our group doesn't work on the Australia Post app or website or anything like that. We were actually uh, built about four to five years ago to build new digital businesses. So there's a, a couple lines of that business group at the moment, which Andrew Warduck announced in the AFR just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's a really big push around digital identity. So how do you get your identity digitized? There's a big payments opportunity as well. So new services called Alpha Payments mm-hmm. um, and, and a couple others. Now, within that group, I'm in a group called Emerging Products. So we were more formed to see that, well, we have these existing lines, but what are those other opportunities that we could potentially look at a market segment, interact with customers, get their feedback, get ideas, and go through the sort of innovation pipeline or framework? And basically, it's one of two avenues. You could either have a directive of a, of a sector or an industry from the leadership group, and you would then explore that, that sector. So you would say, okay, we have a sector. How do we, do we have some ideas already from the leadership group? And that's really where it differs. So either you already have an idea and a concept and you work from that point and you try and build out a lean canvas model, understand your riskiest assumptions, understand what are your hypotheses, Mm -hmm. which is a fancy word for what are your questions, your unknowns? What do you want to test? What do you want to prove? If you don't have that idea, which is great because sometimes when you have an idea, you could be led by that. Yeah. But if you don't have an idea, then you sort of start from scratch and just go, well, give me the sector. And this is where I think design thinking really comes into play. It's just researching the broad industry, interviewing lots of customers, having good one-on-one, having intercepts, so going out to stores, grabbing a bunch of concepts and ideas, and systematically prioritizing those around desirability, feasibility, viability. So quite basically, you know, do people desire it or want it? Do you have the technical skill set or feasibility to build it? And is it, do you believe it will be viable? Now, it might sound a bit scary to have to do all of that, but at different stages of the growth of an idea or product, you do different levels of that. So in the very beginning, it would just be someone who's technical in the room, someone who maybe is the customer mindset, and someone who, who may have a commercial mindset doing a quick run out of all of your ideas. So, so we would have like 100 ideas maybe we've got from customers, and we would do a quick pass-through, we'd prioritize those, and then we'd do little prototypes, lean prototypes, low fidelity, high fidelity, would often ask questions around, again, applying to the commercial model, what alternatives do you use, how much do you normally spend on others, what is desirability, before we even really build anything. And then we use that as an indicator of, okay, what would we actually like to build and say do a pilot? You know, and again, when I say do a pilot, it's what's the smallest thing you can build, a minimal viable product. So sometimes it's just a website and we'll do everything manually in the back end. So just be, you know, just hard, hard grunt, just manually filling out forms or whatever, just to test the need. And then if you hit a couple numbers there and get some good metrics, good engagement, then we'll look at, okay, how can we actually now build something? And the great thing about doing something manually beforehand is you figure out what you need to build and prioritize. 
and etc. So we've been running for about a year, mostly setting up the team. We've got two lead product managers. We've got a team of about 15. And so a lot of it is running through that process of idea generation, testing, execution, using Lean Startup, design thinking and agile. Mm. And at the moment, we're also looking at how can we potentially apply that model to the broader business. And how much have you got some of those products in the business now? So my colleague, she's actually launched her product internally. So Ospost is actually the first customer. And she's actually, yeah, talking to external customers right now. And it's actually interesting. It's starting to see more and more the value of potentially having your corporate as your first customer, Mm. if that's possible, because you have a lot more leeway. You know, if you make a mistake, if something happens, like there's a lot easier recovery situation. And it's just good because if internal customers, it's funny, you're thinking an internal customer or your own customer would, you know, do you a favor or want to help you? Mm. It's sometimes the opposite. They they sometimes have a quite high, yeah, they have a really high bar, you know, so it it shows you reality. So it's sort Mm. of the semi-safe space where you've got this frenemy, I guess, Someone who's friendly, but maybe could be an enemy. It's always touch and go. They've got incentives. They've got other things they want to achieve. So if you're not actually solving a problem, they're not going to really give you the time of day. Is there an element of that being the first product as well? Your colleagues bringing sort of the first one out of your team, so they're being a bit more judgmental? No, no, I wouldn't think so because at the end of the day, it's more just who are you selling that to? So this product's been sold to a group within Mm OzPost. And they just care about themselves like any business, right? So they're just looking at it going, okay, what are my problems are you solving a problem? Are you going to help me? How much effort should I put into this, etc.? And at that phase, what you're trying to learn is, I mean, for her, it's a B2B business, her product. So she's trying to figure out, okay, how long does it take me to implement? You know, what systems do I need to implement? What help do I need? What's the time to life to acquisition, to conversion, etc.? Those are all the things she's learning just internally. And now she could take those lessons and when she went to an external customer, she had questions and she had answers to all the questions from them. Okay, how would you do this? How would you brand it? What would you do, yeah. etc. So she's doing really great and she's shown some really good value at a very short time. For us, we've done a bit after her. We did a bunch of research. We identified a bunch of opportunities. We killed a bunch early. We then launched one off-brand, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. Having the capability to do things off-brand is just so important. I mean, your brand is can be powerful, but it can also be a distraction. It can add a lot of complexity in terms of legal risk, compliance, potentially, etc. So we're lucky enough to have a, a framework where up to a certain number of users, we don't have to go through all of those processes. Mm-hmm. We get an exemption, essentially. And so for us, we, we launched a product. We thought, great, this, this seems like a really good opportunity. And we uh, drove a bunch of Google traffic and ads. And what we realized that is there just isn't enough volume. Mm. There's just not enough volume to satisfy a business that we would like to reach. So we have a target of a business after three years that Mm -hmm. we want to get to in revenue. And we just realized there's no way it's going to happen. So if we had kept going down that path, our job would be to educate the customer about that product. And we just didn't want to do that. So we said, interestingly enough, we stopped that experiment. But from that broader, I guess, vertical, we learned some stuff. So now we've actually gone back. So it's funny. We started with the sector. We spoke to customers. We identified an opportunity. We launched it off brand. We saw there wasn't enough traffic and demand. But now we actually saw there was an interesting opportunity there. So we've actually gone back to the, not the sector, but the industry. Mm-hmm. And we, we're doing a bit of a scan again. So we're going back to design thinking. So it sounds a bit confusing when I explain it, but what's great is you could learn and pivot, I guess. It's actually a good segue into um, another question that I wanted to ask, which was your view around 
time spent in research. So you yeah. mentioned there when you know when you're looking at a volume of ideas that yeah. potentially have been generated by customers, you go straight into experimentation. So that build, test, learn. Yeah. Piece. But then if you're starting with a sector theme or a challenge space, you'll do more of the traditional design thinking discovery phase. Talking to other practitioners and mm. specifically Cisco the other day, yep. they've got, or their head of innovation, Kate, has a view that we can spend far too long in research and you can almost get paralysed by that process mm. if you don't take yourself into testing your prototype early in the process. What is your view around that? Well, well quick thing, like, again, my disclaimer is my experiences and, and what I do form how I also work. Mm. Now, for Cisco... They're phenomenally good at taking a product and just scaling it. Like if you gave them a finished product, regardless on desirability, feasibility, whatever, viability, and you gave and you said, this is a gold mine, through their global network, they'll build it, replicate it, deploy it in months. Like it is amazing. Again, I'd say, you know, what are you good at as a, as a potential business? So if, for us, and that's a lot of hardware, like hardware is hard. <laughs> you know, it's got the word hard in it. I just realized that. But yeah, so in terms of going back and something I just want to touch on, I guess if you're going to try and be innovative or build an innovation lab or start your journey on innovation, I think there's a couple of pathways you, you can go and, and you sort of touched on it. Um, generally, what I find is that historically, if you think of the command and control, the hierarchy on nature of organizations, you've had a manager or a leader, and they would normally be seen to be the idea generator. And they would be the one with the idea. And unfortunately, that's normally linked to the strategy. So because they send the strategy, they feel like they have to bring up the idea. And because they bring up the idea, your team below you would execute on that idea. Now, a lot of organizations still work like that, you know, so what happens is you could go within a group and you might have that leader has that idea and it is hard to go to that leader and then go, well, your idea is valuable, but we're going to not do that. We're going to go back right to the beginning and look at the entire sector. It's like, you know, that leader may have issues going, well, hang on, do you not trust me? This is my role. I know my business. What do you mean? Who are you? So sometimes what you have to do just to get the conversation going is saying, great, let's take your ideal concept. Let's apply it through a lean startup canvas. Let's identify the nine components of the business. Let's identify what you feel you know and you're confident. What are the riskiest parts you don't know? And let's just test this. So you just need to take their idea, take the concept and just test it and run it through and see, is there validation here? Is there desirable? Is there feasibility? Is there for them to just, I guess, get on board with the process? And once they get comfortable and, and you never know, like seriously, it might be a great idea. Like you just don't know and they'll be successful and, and wonderful, but more than likely, maybe it won't be. And hopefully they'll see it through the process that you've interacted with customers. You've had a customer voice. They've seen customers interact. It's very important that they don't just hear it from you, that they hear it from customers. Mm. It's, a, it's a bit funny. Sometimes in a relationship, my, my wife gets annoyed at me because uh, I'll come home and say, oh, I spoke to you know this person. And they said this amazing thing. She's like, I've been telling you that for the last three months or you know three <laughs> years. I'm like, why haven't you listened? I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know why. Like Sometimes you do need that external voice. Mm. So if you can do that. But once you get them to accept that and maybe either validate or invalidate the concept, then going back to sort of, okay, what's the sector or the group or the strategy as a whole mm. and how do we run through sort of a design thinking process to interact with customers, get the concepts, bring them through a pipeline mm. and not be, I guess, idea-led but be customer-led, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, Does that yeah. answer your question? I'm yeah, so I mean, a sometimes bit. the methodology can depend. I mean, because, of course, we're talking about corporate innovation. Yeah. So this is, yeah, exactly. you know, you've got to play the politics sometimes. Yeah, yeah. The reality yeah. that the person who 
you know, is behind the idea or is driving or potentially is paying the bills or, you know, yeah, is yeah. sponsoring that initiative sometimes yeah. there, you know, you might get led by what you're you exactly. have to do this. And I guess I'd most probably call it a change management education exercise, yeah. you know, because they don't know what they don't know. And, and to be honest, to, to give credit to, to Australia Post and how they've, I guess, divided up innovation at the moment, mm-hmm. if you think we have three separate businesses, so the core businesses are consumer letters and parcels, you've got Star Trek, which is sort of our wholesale to wholesale business, B2B, and then you've got us under trusted e-commerce solutions. Now, the core business actually has two sort of innovation teams which are linked together. Uh, one's the Australia Post Accelerator, which predominantly works with external startups yep. and investment. You've got the internal program called Inc., which is more about education of the staff. So taking them through the Lean Start business model canvas, through how to question, how to take business problems to actually go through that process. And then you've got us sort of building businesses and you potentially have our team looking at ways of design thinking, etc., each has a different objective, you know, even though the Inc. program might not have specific products coming out of it, which it actually has in the past, but that's not subjective. Mm. That education component is incredibly important. Like I benefited from that. Like I was interacting with the Broad Australia Post group and I was, you know, not to be a stereotypical white middle-aged man, about 55, mm. you know, I want to talk to him about new innovative ideas, MVP. I can't really use that language. So I'm, I'm starting to chat to him and he's like, I get it. You want to do an MVP, you want to do customer testing, you've got a hypothesis. I'm like, wow, like it, it blew my mind. You know, and to be honest, that's probably one of the few times I've seen the benefits actually in real life. I've seen a lot of people go through this program, but I've never actually experienced the benefit. So that was great. And so I think going in, understanding what is your objective? Is it purely, and this goes back to corporates as well, do you just want to be perceived to be innovative by your external shareholders or customers? Do you want to have an educational uplift? So maybe it's just changing the mindset of day-to-day staff so they think about not just the BAU, the business as usual, you know, how do we just improve this? Oh, no, if I had an opportunity, how could I actually change this or create something new just within the current role? Do you actually want to have a dedicated team looking at Kinsey's potentially Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3 framework? So Horizon 1 is purely, you know, what's in the near term, one, two, three years, Horizon 2, you know, three to five and horizon three, five years plus innovative frameworks. And, you know, do you do want a team like that? Do you actually want to have a separate entity that you completely own or invest or help drive? You know, what is really the objective and being honest with that? Because um, another lesson I've learned along the way is if you don't have the right KPI set up within your business organization, you're just going to waste a lot of people's time. Mm. Because what happens is even if the top leadership, I'm talking the CEO, puts a directive to drive innovation and you have a group exec who potentially has, I don't know how much in revenue under their book, and obviously they want to do what the CEO says. Mm. So say they have a couple hundred million under their, their control or even a hundred million or even 10 And you come to them with a startup saying, hey, here's an innovative startup. You know, they've raised a million dollars. They've got revenues of maybe half a mil or even two. They're looking to do this and this and this. Now, that group exec or or that leader has a KPI to reach a financial target potentially Mm. to get their bonus. And that bonus is to go on holiday to the south of France or get their holiday house in Sorrento, whatever it may be. Now, that person's time is so valuable. They must probably have maybe indirectly 500 direct reports to them, maybe 250, maybe even 50. But at the end of the day, they'll go into that meeting going, how can that startup or entity help solve my problem? Like any business, I have a problem, I want to reach my KPI, my bonus. The reality is they won't. Mm. Or they won't be able to without a lot of bloody hard work. Mm. And also, guess what? KPIs happen in a neat financial year. 
innovation doesn't happen in financial year. It doesn't happen from, you know, July 1 to June 30 and you close it off. And amazingly enough, just in, you know, you know how the last month in June, everyone just happens to make the numbers and just make their bonus. Like that doesn't happen in startups. Like you, you can't just fake the numbers or, or push them through. And so that's a big struggle. So what would happen is the group exec would have the meeting with the startup, waste their time, come back to the CEO, say, hey, I'm being innovative. I did the meeting, but not actually achieve anything. Yeah. It's just a charade. So, you know, Again, just being clear of what is your actual objective, call a spade a spade. Mm. If we just want to look innovative, fine, let's just get marketing. Let's just do the things that will achieve that objective. If you really want to educate, run an ink program. If you really want to build a product, launch it, have a dedicated team, capacity funded, using lean startup, design thinking, etc. Actually look I at mean, so presumably there's a way to tick that marketing box, so the yeah. kind of optics, but actually be making an impact at the same time. So if you that educational exactly. initiative, something like Inc. Yeah, yeah, could be a great PR opportunity. Wonderful, yeah. And but at the same time, it, it is actually genuinely changing. As you said, yeah. it's about that innovation literacy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It is changing mindsets, and it's just giving people the the knowledge that they need, in some cases, just to get out of the way, really, isn't it? They don't necessarily need to be the people driving innovation or doing the, the work, but they just need to let you do what you need to do. Yeah, it's an interesting topic thing you bring up. So, so just talking about, say, the marketing perspective, mm. sometimes what the challenge is where it conflicts with the desires of the two groups. So say you have a marketing team, which would objective is to promote the innovation tasks or job or optics mm. of the corporate. And then you may have, say, a team actually looking to build a startup or a business, etc. Mm. Now, the marketing team has set times that they interact with the media. There might be board meetings, there might be press releases, there might be blah, blah, blah. They have a set agenda and schedule. So they're like, I need something every three months, blah, 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 blah. The startup might not or might not want to let people know about it or might want, etc. So this is just yeah. where understanding, okay, what are your desires? Marketing want everything three months. They want a consistent roadmap plan of what they can announce when, who announced it, blah, blah, blah. They really planned. And then you've got to overlay and go, okay, well, what we're looking to do here, does that match up? And if not, what else can we do to help? It's if you get one setting thing. expectations. Exactly right. Yeah. Project. And, and going back to your other sort of uh, brief concept that you brought up was around getting out of the way or being the right person. Sometimes going back to sort of the horizon one and two and three concept, when you have a potential idea or an area, I think any idea or concept can actually be broken up into those opportunities. Think of it like a roadmap. Mm. You know, you could have an idea tomorrow to sell lollipops. Yeah. And you go, lollipop, okay, well, lollipop is a known product. People currently sell it. That's definitely Horizon 1, maybe Horizon 0, etc. And who would you get to launch that new lollipop or the flavor? You would probably get a good manager, someone who knows that product, knows how to package it, distribute it, knows the relationships. Mm. Now, imagine you then, well, the next phase of lollipops is this VR taste, hardware piece of app. <laughs> now, what sometimes happens is that manager or that team says, oh, yeah, I gave it to that manager. And that manager has both the distribution of this existing lollipop and this VR hardware component to the same manager. Mm. You go, well, hang on, that, that manager isn't good at that. Like their job is the existing, the known, optimizing that. Mm. So what you need to do is you need to break it up and go, well, who is a manager that we can get to drive the Horizon 2 opportunity, and then there's a Horizon 3 opportunity. So sometimes what I find is we'll take one idea and one concept and just lump it in with one particular manager when actually you need to break it out and go say we have a couple options. One, we could actually work on the Horizon 2, 1, 2, and 3 all from day zero. So we say we have three potential product managers looking at these different aspects of this one product. 
or you deploy Horizon 1 opportunity, deploy Horizon 2 opportunity, deploy it. So over five years. But then the challenge there is by the time you've done Horizon 3 in five years, your competitors have already started that earlier. So it's just another thing to think about where what are the right skills of the people? What is their experience? What are they comfortable? What is the mindset, you know? Because I think that's a nice lead into, you know, what is your practical advice for organisations that just may not have the human capital to have three different product managers looking at different horizons on one concept, let alone multiple. Yeah. You know, if an organisation, you know, often it kind of comes from the top and we need to be more innovative and the board's starting to talk about it and the right noises are being made, commitments there, they've found some funding. What's your advice as a, from your perspective and everything that you've learned about where is the best place for people to start? Well, generally, some of the best advice I got just in terms of startups and, and startup advice, never build a startup for today, mm. you know. <laughs> for corporates, I'm talking, yeah. I'd love to apply. It's the okay. same thing, right? Yeah. Like if, yeah. if you're a startup, essentially what's the objective? You mm. want to build a business, you want it to be competitive, you want to be able to generate revenue and you want longevity and you want growth, right? So one of the advices from a startup perspective was don't sell your product or build your business for now and how much they charge now. So a classic example was an existing competitor, say a CRM platform, is selling their service for $50 a month. Okay, in five years' time, is it still going to be $50 a month? You know, they have an X number of feature sets, but how could you potentially have that either basic feature set or whatever it might be and actually charge $25 per month? You know, where's the disruption going to have? Because if you think any business will essentially either be disrupted or need to acquire more users, etc. How do you actually plan for a product that will be bought in five years, not now, to be competitive? So what normally happens is business would launch a product. They would say, hey, my customers need feature one to 10. And then they'll go back to customers, get some more feedback, add another five, another five, another five. And what you realize is actually there's a diminishing return about each extra feature. It becomes bloatware almost. So advice I'd normally give is if you're looking to be Again, depends on the objective, but if you really want to have a look as a corporate and understand, well, what is going to either disrupt us, which is an overused word, but who are maybe the competitors? Who's going to come up with products that will actually eat our lunch and take revenue away from us? Mm-hmm. I would like to look in the further term. So Horizon 2, Horizon 3. It doesn't mean you can't test and launch and get feedback from customers now, but knowing that my objective is actually when I launch this product and when I do it, my target is to get where the puck will be in two to three years. Yeah or four years, not where it is now. So that could be price, it could be technology. And also a challenge to say, whatever product concept you have, have a look at who are the existing players and what is the status quo? So again, I'll use the feature. Say there are 100 features, like every product in this category has 100 features. You don't want to test the 100 features. You know you need the 100 features. You want to test the unique value proposition, which is feature 100 to 125. What are those 25 features, again, 25 features, just, just a number, that will actually convert and solve bigger pains for your customer set Mm -hmm. because that's what you want to do. So potentially this is why a lot of startups sometimes um, look to build on open platforms. So a great one is Atlassian. So Atlassian is software used by developers to manage their development lifecycle and products and stories, et cetera. Now, if I was to look to sell to developers or to sell to product managers and I thought, hey, I've got this great way to do blah, Mm -hmm. prioritize maybe, I'm not going to build Atlassian I'm just going to go on their marketplace, build an add-in to Atlassian and try to target my customers for the add-in. So yes. they're already Atlassian customers. I only built a little bit of code. There's 25 features. That's my unique value proposition. That's what I'm trying to build. I don't want to build 
the whole of it last year. And if I get traction, then I can make a call. Either I could just be a successful business on Atlassian's platform, or I could rebuild, invest the time to build the 100 in a different, more better UI way to then target them. Does that make sense? Yes. So to yeah. me, it's always targeting and focusing on the unique value proposition. Mm. What is the differentiator that you believe? But again, having that focus be over the longer term, horizon two, horizon three, not horizon one. And again, horizon two and horizon three could be technology, could be pricing, it could be uh, product differentiation. Like it's not just technology. It's not mm. just has to be VR or AR or whatever it might be. Does that make yeah. sense? Yep, yep. So I suppose that's getting into the detail of how that innovation team would run. Yeah. Which then leads me to that question because it sounds like the way that a specific innovation team or a lab yeah. could potentially operate, yep. less of the, you know, which where should an organisation put its energies, if that makes sense. So if we talk about... Coming back to post, we talked about there's sort of three channels. Yep. So you've got the educational uplift or building capability. You've got the accelerator, yep. garage-style accelerator, and then you've got groups like your own that are teams of sort of product managers building new digital pieces to sell back into the business. Any view on where they should put their energy first? Or it depends uh, on the organisation. Yeah, it? I think, yeah. look, I know it sounds boring, but I'd actually just start with an audit. So a classic audit of what are your products? Like just what's your business? Like sometimes what happens is businesses get started and they start with a vision. They start with a mission. They start with, hey, this is what we want to achieve in the world. And you get a lot of managers. You get a lot of products. You lose your way a bit. Some products are launched, just left to languor. They aren't closed off. You know, I think we've reached a point where I think Traditionally, what a product used to be or what people used to think it was is, hey, you got an idea, you put in some dev, some design, you launch it and you leave it. Mm. To me, that's not a product. That's a promotion. That's yeah. a campaign. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. A product has a life. It has a creation. It has an adoption curve. Like I highly recommend, you know, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm, uh, you know, in terms of differentiating between early innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority and laggards. Like it just every product has a life. It starts, it's born, it reaches apex and it dies. And essentially every business wants to get to an opportunity where their product is launched, it's starting to go on an upward trend. And while it's on an upward trend, you're looking at your next product that will either take it to another because that's eventually going to reach apex. Like it could be growing by 16% per year. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Next year, 17. Great. Next year, 18. And the year after that, 17 again. Oh, no, it's not that bad, just 1%. Next year after that, only 16. Next year after oh, no, but it's not that bad. So you sort of start making these excuses. Mm-hmm. And so you have to keep continually looking at what is the product that you're going to keep growing or creating, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So going back to your question, I'm going to show you just start with the audit of where do we currently, how do we categorize our products right now? Are they growing? Are they declining? Uh, should they be you know, um, put to the side you know, and, and essentially decommissioned? What is our our monetary assignment to those different verticals. How many people do we have? And so if you had a classic, hey, we've got 80% in these declining products, mm-hmm. uh, you know, managers just trying to survive these, well, let's make a call. Let's look at the bottom 20%, decommission those products quickly, take those resources, reassess them for mindset and ability to be in a different group. Like two, maybe think of Horizon 2 or Horizon 3 opportunity. Like how do you allocate your funds? And and the, and the number of thing, again, applying back to maybe the startups and the growth, your value is in R&D, in mm. IP, in your differentiation to your competitors. If you're not investing, I think generally in the startup world, it's 10%. Mm. In that, you are 
you're going to be caught up. You know, there are classic businesses. And again, it's not just startups. It's not just two people in a garage. It's just your competitors. It's your existing competitors doing stuff that you don't know, yeah. creating partnerships, investigating. So again, I don't like the word disruption that much because I think it gets overused and people don't understand it or, or can distance themselves from it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just about how are you maintaining and growing every dollar you get from customers and who can potentially take that away from you. So it is, you know, a bit above just survival, really. Yeah, I like it. It's just that book, sorry, it was Crossing the Chasm. Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. It's like a 20-year-old book. Yeah. And I think it relates to a really bunch of old examples. But Jeffrey Moore, he's he's written some some new books since then. But it's the most simplest concept of, and the big thing he was raised in Crossing the Chasm was that you could start a product and get early innovators. Mm. So people just love tech. You know, I have, I think, over 550 apps on my phone. I don't use 550. I just love it to yeah. load them up, play with them, see the UI, see the experience, see what they use, blah, blah, blah. Some I keep, some I throw out, but I, I love the app experience because I think it's the pinnacle of UI and, and technology. So I really enjoy that. But that doesn't mean I'm going to keep using it. I install it. I do it. Great. Then you got early adopters. Now, the early adopters, what's great about them is there's the classics phrase. I don't know if you've heard of it in corporates before. No one ever got fired for choosing IBM. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's that classic, safe. I'm in the course, it's safe. Yeah. Like, hey, if, if they stuffed up, you know, it's not my fault, it's IBM. Like, <laughs> you know, I pay them all this money, they did it. Oh, well, you know, yeah. you won't get fired. It's yeah. this mentality. Now, the nice thing about early adopters, they don't care you're not IBM. Mm. All they care about is the problem you're solving. So they'll say, and generally early adopters can be identified because they're already doing things manually to mitigate or solve their problem. So, you know, they could be using paper, they could be using alternatives, they may have hacked their own solution, blah, blah, blah. And so they're the ones who are looking for a solution. They're like, wow, finally I found the solution. Wonderful. I'll use you. Now, the funny thing is there's this chasm where most startups die, where they've got these people who don't care your IBM, but then you're trying to jump to the early majority who, funny enough, do care that you're not IBM. So generally the early majority will not buy from someone whose prior customers are just these early adopters. So they want to see that, hey, if again, say I'm a big financial organization, I want to see that, you know, you've sold to another financial organization or I'm a big utility company. I want to see, I don't want to see that you've got Joe Schmoe. So do you have to have the risk underlying it really? Well, well, just being realistic that whoever you sold to prior is not going to get you to the next segment of customer. Mm. So it's understanding that your marketing material. So again, it just goes to your business, right? So if I was to sell into an SME, who might have been my early adopter, and they've got a couple of staff, how much I need to convince them. They may have one decision maker, one business owner. I just have a chat with them over coffee, and they buy the product. Great. Super easy. Now when I go to a corporate with 20,000 staff, they've got risk, compliance, end users, decision makers, buyers. Exactly. (laughs) There's a whole different complex structure of doing a sale. So it's a combination of what is the collateral, what are the materials, but also how have you got that first customer? So sometimes what happens is, with startups or even corporates when they're building a new product, you, you get a bit arrogant about, mm. hey, no, I'm selling this product for this, yeah. you know, and I will only get a customer if they pay me $100,000. But guess what? If that is a key customer to get you onto the next, you might just do that for free. Like you might just do that for 10K or 5K because your next corporate customer doesn't know that big corporate only paid 5K. But what you see is you have that big corporate. Uh, obviously, you get it in the deal that you can talk that you have that corporate. But yeah, if, if you get what I'm saying, I do, it's I do, just, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Okay, that's your book to recommend. 
Oh, uh, talking about books, so the books I'd recommend yeah. is Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm, uh, very much that's marketing focus, yeah. life cycle do- adoption of products, Running Lean by Ash Mariah and Scaling Lean. So uh, he essentially took what Steve Blank did in mm. Four Steps to Epiphany and what Eric Reese did in uh, Lean Startup and combined it in like a dummy's guide of how to do a startup, you know. I'll, I'll preface that with Eric is not a design thinking expert or human-centered design consultant or anything like that. So some of his interview scripts, you know, don't adhere to the philosophies of human-centered design thinking, but his structure and his approach and his layout, uh, you know, I I couldn't fault, which which is really great. And to give you some context, so Steve Blank, who who first was sort of the father, I guess, of Lean Staff and Customer Discovery, he comes from a marketing background, which is really interesting because he sort of saw these problems where these entrepreneurs were raising huge amounts of money but um, not actually testing the concept idea with customers and then, you know, spending lots of money, trying to build everything, build the entire solution. And then, you know, salespeople would try to sell it in marketers and they would just fire the salesperson in the market and say, you idiot, you obviously couldn't sell it, you know, but they'd never spoke to customers before. So he was the one who started with customer discovery and essentially what that outlines is that you've got specific phases of, of product development. You know, you have what's called problem solution fit, Essentially, if I was looking to, if I interviewed you and there was a specific problem and I built that sort of product to solve your problem, this is a one-to-one relationship. So I've got problem solution fit. I've solved your problem with the solution. Next phase is product market fit. So now it's like, how do I get a thousand of you or 10,000? How many are there of you? How do I acquire you? And ultimately, you know, do I have a scalable business model? For a dollar that I might spend to acquire you, I get a dollar fifty. And then the third big phase is obviously scaling. You know, once I have that metric, how do I scale? But a lot of the time where we're in this loop is between problem solution fit and product market fit, and we keep pivoting. Because what it goes back to is that, and then this is another interesting lesson. You may have a business or an ideal concept, but what you went in with, thinking about the channel or the target or the pain or the price may not have been right. So maybe you had to adjust the channel or adjust the price or adjust your pains or whatever. And generally you learn this through interviewing customers. Now, one of the lessons from corporates is that corporates, again, have a history. They have a, people who have been there for a long time. Mm. And sometimes well, what I come up against or I've, I've seen is that you would have an ideal concept that you would like to apply. And then someone comes and says, oh, no, we, we tried that five years ago. It didn't work. <laughs> didn't work at all. I was like, oh, right, okay. And it's like, you have another one. Oh, no, we did that 10 years ago. Didn't work at all. But it's like, but hang on, how did you actually test it? How did you apply it? What were the nine segments? Because, again, if you look at the Lean Canvas by Ash, it's maps out your entire business. And a business is complex. So to say that just because one concept applied 10 years ago is the exact same way you're going to apply it now with the same technology services, it's just not the right way to think about it. So I highly recommend Running Lean is a great summary of both the four steps to epiphany, which was a marketing sort of concept and how do you go through ideation and also Eric Reese, which is more about continuous deployment and build measure learning concepts. Yeah. So those are probably the two books I'd highly recommend. Absolutely. I like it. Can we actually just go back a little bit on to, um, you touched on it a bit there, but talking about the intersection between design thinking and lean. So you mentioned yeah. you are doing more of that yeah. um, with your current team. Yeah. In Ozpost, what are sort of examples where you've seen we see the two of them being used yeah, really and well together? And I think second to that question yeah. is also, you know, do you think people sometimes can be too purist yeah. when it comes to methodologies and techniques that they use and 
what's your religion yeah. or practice? I, I like <laughs> this. Picking and choosing different tools. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good question. And so the experience from Nab Labs was actually highly human-centered design focused. A huge team, I think almost like 45 people just in oh. human-centered design and very human-centered design led. And, and, and I le- learned a lot about what I know about human-centered design from that group. So I'm very, very grateful. And uh, so disclaimer, my background probably comes from more the lean startup, Steve Blank type of operating. So, you know, being an IT architect, then becoming a product manager, then thinking about businesses, or maybe that commercial mindset and opportunity. And again, Steve Blank, Eric Reese, Ashmarine, none of them are human-centered design, so don't think it's. But it's funny, uh, when I chat to people about, oh, you know, Steve Blank said, get out of the building, talk to your customers. And he's saying this to, de- to developers, to coders, to traditional founders who are these coding monkey, you know, people just inside the building, coding their vision and they build it and they'll come. It's like, no, get out the building, talk to customers. And you would then go to design thinkers and go, well, or research going, crap, we've been doing that for 10, 20 years. Mm. You know, well, that's nothing new. So what I found is that each discipline, be it a design thinker or human-centered design or marketing or startup or whoever, you know, everyone has written their own books or materials on how to do product, how to do research, mm. etc. cetera. And, and it really does, I do connotate it to religions because it's almost like, or, or even connotate to, your, to, to an author you really like. Mm. You know, you might read their first book and you like the way they write, you like the style, the communication. You read their second book, the third book, the first, fourth book, and you just get in that habit. Mm. And so anytime as a new trend comes up, be it lean startup, be it startups, be it innovation, do whatever, naturally that author will have a concept around that and apply it. And, and so you sort of end up building these libraries where it's almost like the thought process of how to do it can only be done this way. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest challenges at the moment when bringing in cross-disciplinary teams who have these different backgrounds and, and histories and, and it could be in research, could be in design thinking, human-centered design, lean startup, commercial, is, is having the right collaborative mindset going, mm-hmm. look, we're, we're here not to profess any particular one way of doing it. But every time we come together, we're reassessing and reevaluating how should we go about doing this, bringing the two objectives together, the objective of design thinking and the objective of lean startup and the objective of agile methodology. Because, um, I mean, agile's been around for 10, 15 years, Mm -hmm. you know, and the basic concept there was we just want to become more efficient in what we build, which is wonderful. But what we now have got to is we really need to understand why we're building some, what we're building, how do we prioritize mm. based on what is the objective of potentially you know, solving a customer pain or need, which design thinking is incredibly familiar with and grateful, and having a commercial outcome and being technically you know, viable, uh, feasible. Um, but again, going to those religions, there isn't just one way. So just be flexible. And so the team and having a mindset of going, I'm bringing to this team my skills and capability, but I have an open mindset to be able to, you know, be flexible and apply different opportunities, apply different outcomes. And and something I've, I've just recently been learning is that the background of human-centered design being the desire to help every human conflicts, you know, with the desire to create a scalable business. Yeah. You can't solve every problem. It's because, you know... Unless we have limited amounts of money and resources to solve every problem for every person, that would be a wonderful world to live in, but it's not reality. At the end of the day, you want to build a thriving business and to have a business, you need a scalable customer base. Mm-hmm. So it's so that challenge of making sure that, hey, you know, at the end of the day, we have to accept that we're going to try and solve problems for people as much as we can, but we're going to have to just let other problems die or, or be left alone, and that's just a reality. So I think that's where we have to get to because they don't work in isolation. Yeah, I think you've put it really 
well that it's I mean it's the simplest way to solve that challenge of are we using the right methodology is to have more people in the room with those skill sets mm. if you have five design thinkers on a project we know <laughs> which way it's going to go and then same thing with lean so it's you know, approach each challenge or each idea with the tools that you need that are appropriate in that situation and to do that you do need those multidisciplinary teams. And don't stop. Like, mm. you know, lean design thinking are not going to be the only methodologies exactly. in Azure for the yeah. next What's 20 next? years. Yep. So, like, some of the things that I really like at the moment yeah. that I'm trying to get the team to look at are things like, have you heard of Nia EL? No. He does um, habit-forming apps. Okay. Um, and he has a habit loop. So yeah. it's thinking about when you're doing the product and doing the prioritization of features, mm. how are you looking at the loop of creating a habit, incentivizing, coming back, communicating, You've got the Metrics for Pirates by Dave McClure, which Ashma Raya has now sort of put in Scaling Lean really well, yep. where you have these, what's the, the acronym is A-A-R-R-R-R-R, so Acquisition, Activation, Retention, Revenue, Referral. How are you thinking about your business through the funnel, quite, which yeah. is really, really quite simple yeah. to understand and then implement. But yeah, just constantly looking at ways that people are applying. Oh, I really love the, who recently released the book, Blue Ocean Thinking. So, you know, that's again, maybe a bit more on the ideation side. But again, how do you bring all these tools and capabilities, almost understand when is just the right time to use it or bring out a tool. And that again, IDEO have an amazing document of like 50 different workshop or capabilities or ideations. And so I just think it's almost like an artist, you know, you, you have a palette, you have colors, you have shades, you have, you know, maybe uh, different brushes, etc. And for each situation, just bring the palette or the brush that you think is appropriate mm. and use that tool. It doesn't matter whether it's lean, whether it's HD, but if you don't expose yourself to different ways of doing things and continually trying to push your own thinking and process of what is the way to do it, mm. you will miss out and because it's forever changing. That's a great metaphor, actually. I just came up with that might be your book. <laughs> I think that's great because I was actually going to ask a question around, you know, what are, or actually maybe more specifically, away from bodies of thought or different methodologies and that sort of emerging trends onto, you know, what do you think the next trends in corporate innovation or things that you're seeing, good or bad, people should be exposing them to, themselves to or... It's a good question. Look, I tend to be overly optimistic about where people actually are. You know, I I think we still, like you've referenced maybe in the past, we're still in the beginning of the journey. Mm. I think the work that I was able to be exposed to experience in Nap Labs and Polonizing, Optus, and a bunch of other organizations, and, and just seeing how bringing in accelerators and incubators from the startup world into like this is not trying to blow my horn or anything. This is like leading edge stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the thought process of how do we bring these three together? How do we innovate? You know, some of the challenges that, that I've seen is where even product management is still not something that is coherent. If you do a search on Seek, for product management, mm. you will get a range of roles, everything from product manager to commercial manager to producer type product manager roles to, you know, and, and again, because it hasn't been around for so long, product managers um, have varying backgrounds. You know, they could be ex-marketers, ex-developers, ex-designers, ex-UIers, ex-commercial, ex-lawyers, mm. ex you know, so even the product field itself, I think, is still being established. And so what this means, and generally what I've seen, not only in myself, but in others, that whatever your background and when you come into a product role, which requires this 
uh, again, this balance between des uh, desirability, feasibility, viability, you would just default to what you like. <laughs> so if you're a marketer, you, you may lean more towards the, the uh, commercial side, the viability yeah. side, and, and disregard or maybe not pay as much time to the desirability or, or feasibility, etc. And if you're technical, you may apply too much time into the feasibility, but not. So what I like about these frameworks is that it just, it isn't to get you into trouble. It isn't to make you look bad or look silly. It's almost just a prompt every mm -hmm. time. So, so we have these showcases every two weeks where we stand up and we say across all of our products in our group, okay, what did you learn last week? What are you going to test this week? What did you test last week? What did you learn? And what are you going to test in the next cycle? You know, just to get people in the habit across desirably, feasibly, viably. Yeah. So it doesn't mean every two weeks you would have touched each one of those. Mm -hmm. But if you want to think of it like a stage gate. So again, if we're in an early stage of an idea, what is the minimum we do at that level for desirably, feasibly, viably? You need to have answered these questions. Mm -hmm. So at the very, very beginning, it could have been a really low fidelity prototype that you interact with customers, you know, ask some questions, understood some opportunities. Maybe that's the average price they spend for products that could be put in viability. Feasibly, uh, we spoke to a couple tech devs. We understood, you know, how much would this MVP uh, cost, etc. Where do we think it would be? Just low. And then if we, hey, do we think there's something there? Okay, let's now go into a deeper stage. Okay, so each time you go through the phases of, say, an innovation product lifecycle, mm -hmm. the bar to pass is higher and your confidence level needs to grow. Mm -hmm. So you keep asking questions. So for us, it's almost like this bar. So if you think by the time you actually want to launch a product, you're 85, 90% confident on desirability, feasibly, viability, guess what? In the first phase of ideation, you only need to be 20, 25. Yeah. In the second phase, you only need to be 40 to 50. Mm -hmm. Third phase, and these are all associated within metrics. So hopefully as you keep building, again, you might just have, oh yeah, we asked 10 customers or 20 customers and 40% said they'll be interested. Oh, we then did a pilot. After that, we had X number of people sign up, X number. After that, we did. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What is your personal advice after your long career in this, as an entrepreneur, I would say, as well as you've been the entrepreneur, you've been the entrepreneur, for people, your advice for the entrepreneurs, for people driving innovation from within, sometimes without the support of their organisation or the right kind of infrastructure set up for whatever reason. What's your advice to them? I think have a look at what you can control, you know, what is within your sphere of control. Mm -hmm. So depending on your role, whether you're a product manager, whether you're a developer, a designer, whoever it might be, just educate yourself. So first understand it, it, education yourself is a very, very first point. So no one's stopping you from going out and reading or buying a book of Running Lean. No one's stopping you from going to a meetup group and about design thinking. No one's stopping you from talking to a developer. So your limitations are set by yourself, but obviously your ability to execute obviously could be set by your role and your position. But also what I found is that nine times out of 10, you're not the only person with that mindset. So it's like, how do you find people like you within your organization? One simple way I found is actually, again, this goes back to this analogy of an external voice is potentially just arranging a talk, a lunch and learn, mm -hmm. a brown bag, where you have a particular interest. So it could be around lean, it could be around design. Go on LinkedIn, go to a meetup, find someone who spoke about it and just say, hey, would you be willing to come in and talk you know, for an hour or half an hour and field some questions? And then what you could do is you could just invite that person. It's obviously maybe a topic you're interested. Invite a bunch of people, maybe send out a distribution list mm -hmm. and just see who pitches up. And you'd be surprised. And if you did that again and again, 
you know, each, you know, month or two months, you'll start seeing the same people coming and you'll start, and I would encourage you to keep those connections, start building stronger connections, have conversations, and then maybe start seeing how could you apply that to your role. So again, if you're, you're a designer, you interact with a product manager, just ask a question and say, hey, I've, I've seen about this new process or methodology. I'd love to try and apply it in a product. And I've thought about it. It could be applied in this way or a bit more softer. Hey, I've, I've read this or seen this. What are your thoughts on this? Have you ever been, you know, do you think this might help or not? It depends politically how comfortable you are with either the senior management or the group. It could be one of two. They could see it as a threat. Like, who are you to start telling me how to do my job again? Mm-hmm. Just being a bit negative. Or hopefully they would be quite open to it and saying, hey, that looks like a great opportunity. And hopefully they would ask you, how do you think this should be applied in the product in terms of your role? So I think just start off firstly within what's your control not only in your role, but your own education. Your own education is only limited by you. There's so many podcasts, you know, for example, uh, the one you're doing right now. Podcasts, online, learning, web blogs, uh, meetups. I love meetups mm. because um, I don't have as much time anymore with two kids to go out to meetups. But I love them because, again, everyone in that room is there for hungry. a reason. Hungry yeah. and has a similar desire and need and to it's learn. low pressure. Low pressure. Really and you can t- just talk to a person. Like, it's so easy to just go it's talk to a person. still one of the best kept secrets, aren't oh, they? It's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing yeah. when, when I meet some people and they're like, oh, no, I hate meetups. And yes, the sort of closed mindset, you are deciding to close yourself off to learning, growing, understanding, interacting, and that's your choice, but you have made a decision that could impact the rest of your life, you know, but sometimes people just do that for certain reasons or don't know. So again, um, it's probably just be open-minded, see what's in your control and, and just have a desire for learning, share that. Mm. And as you share conversations, even over coffee counters, you'll see who's also interested. Yeah. It's also there's a personal branding angle to what you just mentioned there as well, I think, where it's when you start to become known as somebody who is you know, a keeper of some of these ideas or a sharer of knowledge as well, you can start to attract more of the same kind of people and can make it easier. It's like those conversations inside your organisation are really important, but as you said, it is that kind of the get-out-of-the-building premise as well because there'd be a lot of people just like you who are out there as well, yeah. just as hungry. I, I do find so the, uh, one of the challenges when you do do that sometimes is that conflict between your day-to-day role and your willingness mm-hmm. to learn. So if your organisation does have a good process of, say, a learning development plan, try and early on with your manager to try and show, hey, I have an interest in here. This is how I think it can help our business mm-hmm. or group or help you achieve whatever your objectives are. Hopefully they can share those. Um, and then just allocating a piece of time of your learning development program to those initiatives. So... They know that, hey, you've got two hours a week or a couple of hours to work on these things that you're not seeing like you're derelict in your duties because that can happen as well. Your passion and then your manager would say, hey, you spend way too much time on that. That's not what you're here to do, et cetera, and can actually become a negative. So just being aware of that. Yeah. Final question. If you're going to do a TED Talk, what would it be on? This question is stolen, lovingly borrowed from one of my other favourite podcasts, Tim Ferriss Show, but I think it's a good one. What's your mission? That's a great one. I think at the moment, it'll just be focused on, on what I'm trying to achieve within Australia Post. And that really is that emergence of lean startup design thinking and, and agile and not just separate sort of methodologies, but how do we perform or create high performing teams of cross collaboration groups who are willing in the mindset and the experience to actually really challenge their methodologies, I'm willing to challenge lean startup or apply it with design thinking with agile. To be honest, I think Agile probably isn't as much of an issue because at, at the end of the day, it's just about building and developing efficient code. But but when you have a cross-functional person, when you have a cross-functional team and each has a bit of skill in 
design, product, dev, etc. Um, just how, how do you perform high perform, create high performing teams around that to look at new innovative products, test them, launch them, and become efficient? It sounds really boring, but I, I love efficiency. Yeah. You know, I like being able to make the most out of every dollar and every opportunity and build businesses that are meaningful to customers and that they want and that scale. I think that would be a really popular tech talk. <laughs> That was awesome. Thank you, Humphrey. Great, thank um, you. Great conversation. So we will add the social links to this as well. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Twitter handle. How should people get in touch with you? Oh, yeah, sure. That's yeah, so if, if people, I'm sure yeah. people are really interested in that, especially just what you touched on there about the intersection between design thinking, lean and agile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How should people get in touch with you if they wanted to further that conversation? I think just reach out to me via my personal email at the moment. So I'm free, pl at gmail.com mm-hmm. uh, or through Twitter or through LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll share those links. So I'm, I'm in my own journey of, of setting up those channels correctly. So I do apologize. but No, that's perfect. You've got your socials. Thank you. All right. Thank thanks you. so much. Awesome.